Hello, everybody, and welcome to the AMT Tech Trends podcast. I am your host, Stephen Lamarca, AMT's technology analyst, and I am here with Benjamin Moses, the director of technology. How's it going, Steve? It's going well, Ben. I can't wait to hear about um, your recent road trip. But uh, before we get into that minor gripe while I was uh, struggling to get out of bed this morning and uh, flipping through Facebook, um, I saw a meme. Uh, and, and it was a rather poorly done meme, so I could tell. And, and considering it was also on Facebook, I could I could tell what uh, generation of uh, American had generated this meme, and especially by the meme's content, which was it was basically a, a meme griping about uh, um, self checkout mm-hmm. centers at grocery stores, self checkout registers at grocery stores, and how they're killing jobs, and how you're not a employee at the grocery store. So you are obligated to not use self-checkout and you should never use a self-checkout register. And this, uh, this got me mildly butthurt because, (laughs) (laughs) because number one, you know, we've heard of my rant on the podcast before my love for McDonald's, uh, automation when it's implemented properly. And when the staff is trained properly to use it, uh, and oh, oh, boom, the keyword right there. When the staff is properly trained to use it, like, like it still requires staff, you know, there's still need, you need, still need to have human uh, employees at a location, even though you're Im- implementing automation. But anyway, moving on to like grocery stores, you know, in this, in this terribly done meme with uh, a distorted <laughs> picture because it wasn't scaled and sized properly for the image. Um, and what I won't, I'll stop there, but, um, my, my beef with this meme as anybody's beef with this meme and the, uh, manufacturing, not even just manufacturing industry, like people who use grocery stores know that no self-checkout is great. (laughs) I mean, if you still want to use a human cashier and a human register, you have that option, but you're going to have to sit in a line for it. And oh, like like for example, I like to use self check. I'll use self checkout whenever I possibly can, mm-hmm. um, and it's because it's faster right. and my time is worth money. Sure, I'm not employed there. I'm not getting paid to use it, but uh, my time is worth money. And the faster I get out of there, the less it costs me. I mean, anybody who knows downtime understands that. Yeah. Um, but. Uh, you know, and, oh, if I've got like alcohol in the cart, like if mm-hmm. I got a bottle of wine or a six pack or a case of beer, you know, I'm not going to bother with self checkout sure. because then I still need human interaction to somebody to card me. So I'll just get in line. Um, and sometimes I'm really lazy and I don't want uh, to bag my own stuff. So mm-hmm. I'll get into the line uh, for the cashier to have somebody do it, even though they're not necessarily trained to bag properly anymore. So <laughs> it's it, sometimes it behooves you to bag your own stuff. Um, but the whole point is that, you know, there's the, the argument on that. It's, you know, taking jobs away when right. no, it isn't because, <laughs> you know, there's a pivot in, in, in the employment. Sure. There's less of a need for cashiers, but there will always be a need for cashiers, human cashiers, because there will be some people who want it. And and I just gave the example of why you would want a human cashier in some cases. And that's from somebody who is, you know, I, likes to use self-checkout and likes the, the automation technology of self-checkout. Yeah. But um, 
the other advantage is, you know, this meme, this terrible meme <laughs> was posted on the internet, you know, and it, a, a new tool to the person who uh, probably created the meme. Mm-hmm. And the beauty of the internet is in, in technology, technological advance in general is you now have a new method of doing things and everything else has to, it, it's a disruption. So everything else is disrupted by it right. and thus has to adapt to this new tool that is being implemented. And the beauty of that is sure. While there are less cashiers at your local grocery store, now you can go online, do all of your grocery shopping without leaving the comfort of your own home mm-hmm. couch or bed, you know, select all of the things that you want to do that you want to purchase or you need to pick up for making dinner tonight you can buy it online and then pay, pay, do everything. You select all the stuff, you pay for it. And then, you know, check out online. And then you, uh, you don't even have to get dressed. You just get right. in your car, you go over to the uh, grocery store. You know, don't even have to get out of your car. Somebody comes to your car, loads your trunk up with all of your groceries. You just created a job doing that. Right. And that person who who did the shopping for you and loaded your car for you, you know, they would have been a cashier if it wasn't for self-checkout. True. So before you start attacking people, I'm not saying that you're attacking people, but before this person started attacking people for using self-checkout and eliminating a job and saying that you don't work at the grocery store, you're right. You don't work at the grocery store. So how <laughs> dare you go to the grocery store and start you know, looking through their invent their aisles of inventory when they're supposed to be doing that. They're paid to do that. You don't belong in a grocery store. You belong in your car and they bring the stuff out to you. So it's just, it's a terrible argument. And yeah. it was a meme that really got me fired up this morning. And <laughs> I tried to keep that short and <laughs> yeah, we're no. at six minutes now. So <laughs> now, I have a couple of takeaways. One, you still go to Facebook for social media content, which I is can't, a bad yeah, I know. You need to step I away know. from I'm that. I'm just as bad as those people. <laughs> Uh, the, generation. The other thing is, you know, the uh, hypothesis of this thing, this new technology is going to eliminate job is constantly being proven wrong. Right. So, yes, you know, over time and time again, yeah, there is a shift in, uh, hey, this new thing, we're not sure how this fits in the overall market or how we use it or how humans need to be uh, staffed around it. But then over time, they solve itself. Right. And it generally makes for a better environment. So you're a case of uh, the self-checkout it gets into a hybrid environment, right? So you have the option to go to full uh, serve checkout or self-serve uh, checkout yeah. and it allows for a more flexible environment. And, you know, that's one of the key takeaways in my road trip is that. Right, right. The, the well, flexi- there's, 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 before we get into the road trip, yeah. I just want to say there's like the, the, the key takeaway, there's, there's bad news and there's good news. Yeah. The bad news is this argument will never die. People <laughs> yeah. will continue to say that automation is taking and killing jobs. Correct. And the good news is this argument will constantly be proven wrong by people who make terrible memes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You can't. So yes. the other takeaway is if you're on social media, see a bad meme, you can't trust that person. <laughs> right. right. Um, yeah. So, you know, the, I took a road trip, uh, down to yes. Tennessee and I put about 1400 miles, uh, on, on the car uh, over nice. four days. Um, uh, so driving so to summarize the entire trip i can do that really quickly in miles per gallon so driving back i got about 34 miles per gallon i think it was mainly because 
it was more downhill, I guess, versus going there. Going there, I sure. got about 32 miles to the gallon. Okay. But okay, why, 32 versus 34. Yeah. Not it, bad. It, great mileage for this big car. It's a massive car. Excellent, excellent mileage um, for a car that weighs as much as the USS Arizona <laughs> and makes 400 plus horsepower exactly. combined. You know, so that's that's really impressive. But while just as just just as a, as a reference, a, a control, you know, my car, very lightweight for a modern car. Mm-hmm. You know, it's 2,700, 2,800 pounds, which is stupid lightweight. It's right. under 3,000 pounds and makes no power. Yeah. You know, it's yep. round round 200 at the crank, but probably closer to like 160, 170 at the wheel. Right. And manual transmission and on road trips, I'll hit 34 occasionally, mm-hmm. but if I'm driving flat out, it's 14 to 19 miles a <laughs> yeah. And on average, like my average, like driving around town and highway mileage is between 24, around 24 miles a gallon. Right. But like you're doing better than I am at a car that's way heavier and makes <laughs> way more power. So that's, it's crazy how far we've come, but go on. And while in Tennessee at, Tennessee slash North Carolina. I was driving on the tail of the dragon, and I was getting about 19 miles per gallon. <laughs> so that a boy girl. Yeah, that was great. So you know the the two stories are kind of related, right? So the idea of I don't need all that power on this long duration for 500 miles till I get to this point. So you know let's go more fuel efficient style. So mm-hmm. you know the different mechanics of uh, shutting down cylinders, or in my case, using more battery. Um, yeah, but then once I'm there, I want all 400 horsepower, and I can I can squeeze all out of it. So I think the idea of, you know, a flexible environment is, or a flexible systems to tailor the system as you need it makes a lot of sense, yes. right? So if I I was thinking I was thinking about the other car I was uh, going to buy last year, and it was a Dodge Charger, and I was thinking about could would that get me the same level of efficiency, same flexibility? I'm sure they had probably similar turnoff options, maybe, but can I achieve the same? level of hmm. you know high horsepower when i need it but more efficient when i don't need that power so i, I thought That's it was a, good a point you know there's a lot of parallels into you know how we design systems and how we design uh manufacturing processes as in you know if you have one process I, you know you have a variety of customers a variety of parts maybe that one process isn't super robust for that flexibility so you know when yeah. you look at um high mix and uh, high mix environments you know you have to have some level of flexibility and that's going to cost you something, right? So it's going to cost right. you, you know, either different technologies or additional lines or more more human power, right? So if you like the truly most flexible environments, having human do most of the work. So, yeah, I thought yeah. it was interesting, you know. It uh, is really process. interesting. And when, what I find most interesting is like you know, how I just mentioned that, you know, our cars, like your car versus my car, they're vastly different right. and vastly, you know, you know, different masses, different output figures. Um Yet we have very similar um, uh, mileages yep. in terms yep. of fuel economy. Right. Like like on the highway, yeah, highway mileage, you're probably doing a little bit better than me. You're certainly making more, more power than me. Um, and, you know, with flat out, with spirited driving, we're making about the same mileage, which is really impressive and has a lot to speak for your vehicle. Yeah. However... <laughs> the only thing, the, the only thing that that I'm thinking of is like this. This can't be right. This can't be. This this is crazy. Like, how can he have more power, more mass, and we're pulling the same fuel economy? Mm-hmm. And then I realize, wait, what? There, there's there's another measurement to be taken here. 
would next time you do this yeah let's let's use the same tire which is fair because um you know it's the best tire on the market right now which is the michelin pilot sport 4s yep let's both use those tires Mm -hmm. measure your tread depth before the trip okay and measure your tread depth after the trip sure i bet your tires are hurting (laughs) yeah so for everyone that's listening ask me how my brakes feel after that trip (laughs) (laughs) Uh, it'll be a fun conversation Oh, let's, yeah. let's get in some articles, man. I was, is it all right if I kick it off? I, was, I wanted to do it. talk do about it. Uh, robot machining. Uh, so I ran across yes. an article from uh, the manufacturer, uh, and he and the article is talking about um, basically adding a, a, a subtractive manufacturing end-of-arm end of tooling. Uh, and I thought that was a, you know, a really cool idea. Um, it's been around for a little bit. Um, the it, idea has certainly been around yeah. forever. And I it's think been wanted forever. It's been this wanted has been forever. Like the dream. Yeah. This has been the fantasy of manufacturing executives and <laughs> people for as long as I've been in the industry, which is not very long, but I remember hearing that this was like yeah. one of the first wild rants that I had ever heard. I think one of the things that um, a lot of people are looking for is a a subtractive process that doesn't have to encompass the entire part. Right. So yes. the housing and, you know, like if you look at a gantry, right, you can we talked about Australia's giant, the world's biggest manu- right. manufacturing gantry, whatever. Um, so if if I can go to a robotic arm on a slide, you know, so, yeah, you know, I can reach around another another way to say that is and, and this is the way I was. It was the idea was first presented to me. Right. Was there the dream is to have a machine tool that can produce a part that is bigger than the machine tool itself. Yeah, that's that's a better way to phrase it. Yep. Um, so, you know, the idea of uh, putting a subtractive tool on a, on a robotic arm has been around for a little bit, uh, but there, I think there are some new uh, things that are coming around to that will help facilitate this type of process. I mean, to be honest, pros and cons, there's a lot of pros for it. So the ability to have a, a, a larger work environment, right? Um, yeah, the ability to have like an open environment too, so I don't have to have an enclosure um, or a fully enclosed closure. I can have a fence, or if it's collaborative, mm, I would be I would be questioning whether or not you should fence it off because of the subtractive head. But whatever. Um, but there's also a lot of cons too, right? So you've got the motor. I can think of one. Good, tell me one major con: the most chaotic and unpredictable and uncalculable if that's a word <laughs> backlash ever yeah 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 so it's not just backlash but being able to uh react all the cutting forces and the torque from uh you know yes. cutting yeah, right yeah. so you're you're placing that directly into rotational motors um you know the longevity whether or not it can handle that robotic arms are incredibly precise but mm-hmm. you know if you keep beating on it if you hit it with the hammer like every five seconds how how well is it going to perform for for a year trying to cut that material. Point. Uh, so the article goes through uh, a couple of you know current use cases where they you know they're talking about uh, whittling away fairly soft stuff you know like wood. Um, in this case, they're doing you know foam or plastics things like that. Um, so you know it's not unheard of. Um, but the other drawback is you know if you're not uh, in the picture that they have accurately depicts it where you're cutting looks like a maybe foam or a, a, maybe some plastic where there's chips everywhere. Right, there's debris everywhere. There's no containment of the the chips, or uh, in this case, they're not using any cutting fluids, dry cutting. So that's another, we'll say, limitation, right? Oh yeah. I mean, you could you could add coolant, but now 
Now you've got a robotic arm that's surrounded by uh, coolant. May and now you're best. adding mass to the the end yeah. of however many joints are on that arm. Yeah, and if it's a high pressure system, like through the spindle coolant, you know that's another force you've got to react. So there's a lot of it's fairly it's very very complex. That's a big takeaway. Is that this is a very yeah. complex scenario. Um, but I, I think I think there are um, ways forward because of two scenarios, right? So Oak Ridge has been testing. Uh, additive or 3D printing on robotic on robotic arms, which I think is fantastic, right? It's very little cutting forces, um, and the ability to use gravity as a support tool as opposed to building support. So I think that's one way. So the programming and logic of um, being able to make a part on using a robot that's growing quite a bit. Um, but also the idea of multiple robotic arms. So the idea of I've got one on one side, one on the other. So I don't need the robotic arm to reach all the way across the part, right? They can coordinate yeah. and subtract uh, either to make things you, faster or have better access. Right. You could have a three arm system mm -hmm. and each of those arms could have, you know, uh, its own tool, its own, its own cutting tool mm -hmm. on it. Or you could have just one of the arms on like a track yep. with, the, uh, with the cutting tool and the other two arms are just used for fixturing purposes yeah so one of the arms is the main fixture arm and then you have a third arm which can re-fixture mm -hmm. the uh, the part uh and then that the initial fixturing arm could like you know duck away right while it's getting you know the the main cutting tool arm is getting the underside of the part mm -hmm. it's just what's so cool about this is this isn't vaporware right like and you know it's not vaporware. It doesn't exist yet, but y you don't need you don't need to be a you know high level engineer to tell that this will eventually happen. Agreed, agreed. And it's going to event. We don't know when it's going to happen. We don't know when this is going to be commonplace. But this is going to happen. So the the article ends with you know they talk about machine and composites, and I think that's a very valid use case of you know if Thank I've you. got a a giant aircraft that's more composites like Boeing has shifted to more composite structures where I have to machine on assembly. Right. So if you're on an assembly line, you could theoretically move this robotic arm to a fixed position on the aircraft, you know, have it machine right. the rivet holes and then keep moving it around. So it's, uh, it's great. Absolutely. I, I'd like to see more of this, but, um, and I'll probably, and, and you would, that, that's the perfect example of like a dual arm system yep, because, yep. you know, two riveters, like like human riveters on an aircraft need to be working in unison mm -hmm. and have an awesome rapport with each other. You don't need to build that rapport. You, you have a program to do that. Yeah. And you have computers to do that for you if you use a robot arm. Definitely. And, I, and that's where I think the most value add to the industry will be on assembly machining. So if I've got a giant boat, right, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm going to put a bunch of plates together and I'm going to do machining as it's being built. So, you know, if I could wheel this big robotic arm out, um, onto a gantry or something and then do my thing and then have it leave, you know, cut machine, probably do a bunch of processes, but that's kind of, you know, where I'd see the industry headed. So oh, that was a cool article. That's cool. See, what do you have on, um, automated cells for hi-fi? Yeah. So I love hi-fi, another expensive hobby of mine. Um, but, uh, <laughs> I, this, this production engineering solutions, uh, Pez media, as I like to call them, um, has this article called, uh, Automated cell ramps up productivity for hi-fi manufacturer. Yep. And there's a hi-fi manufacturer, high-end consumer listening audio manufacturer out of the UK, specifically 
Scotland called Lynn, L-I-N-N. Okay. Um, and they're, they're pretty big in the industry uh, for people that can afford it. So like we're, when we're, when I'm talking consumer stuff, it's, it's consumers with like corporate level of, uh, you know, being of spending money. <laughs> sure. um, so like, you know, and, and put that into perspective. So like, you know, I can, I'm, I'm happy that in my living room, in the living room of my apartment, I've got a really nice uh, entertainment center. Sure. You know, I've, I've got Bose audio. Uh, I've got a Bose uh, surround 2.1 system, not really surround sound, but uh, it's, it's, you know, I tuned it, you know, I got the speaker height, right. The speaker uh, distance from each other, you know, I did a little bit of acoustic tuning Mm -hmm. for the room to make it sound as good as possible. But uh, I'm not this, uh, I'm not their clientele. (laughs) Then there's the next level up from me, which is people with like, you know, who probably own houses and have like, multiple living rooms or like a living room and a family room. And one of those rooms doubles as like a home theater Mm -hmm. or, you know, they just straight out have a home theater. Some people actually, I know some people who actually have home theaters in their houses where it is a room specifically for watching like movies or watching TV. You can close the door and it's totally soundproof. And there's people of that level. I'm not talking about them either. There's another level up. (laughs) Where people and their like, you know, extensive, like, you know, multi-room manners that they have on their estate. Um, these people have rooms in their in, in their mansions called listening rooms. It's like a bedroom <laughs> size room right. with only one chair in it placed somewhere near the middle. But it's the chair for listening is placed at the at the acoustic focal point of the room. Right. And the room is tuned with you know the appropriate carpeting on the floor <laughs> you know the the appropriate ceiling tiles mm-hmm. and uh these what look like artwork uh on the walls but they're actually acoustic dampening tiles on the walls and then a very extensive and elaborate uh stereo sure. at on one wall yep. and that's the customer that this brand uh, markets to. Right. Uh, that's the clientele that they sell to. And another way to put that in perspective is, you know, is browsing their website for, you know, the least expensive uh, full system they have. Right. And by full system, I mean, you know, something that you plug in, you send media to it and it plays music. Right. So the cheapest, well, least expensive thing they have is a, wireless speaker or you know bluetooth but if you like if you hate audio you use bluetooth but uh (laughs) you know for quality audio you don't use bluetooth you use a different means of wireless typically a proprietary uh wireless connection and but their wireless speaker that they sell is like like you know we're talking like a jam box thing or like you know a little wireless bose thing their equivalent of that is thirty seven (laughs) hundred dollars and it's the least expensive thing that they have but that's a down payment have, on a car. Exactly. <laughs> that's a that's a solid mortgage right there, uh, or mindfully mortgage payment. And um, when you have clientele like this who are actually buying your products, and and you actually make a product this expensive that's actually selling, you know, you have a means to do some really cool stuff. Sure. And that's what this company does. You know, they enclosures on like. They use in the article, um, I believe it's either a DAC amp. It's a DAC amp okay. that they mill the enclosure for. Um, 
and it's milled on, you know, a quarter million dollar dues on sure. inside a multi-million dollar automated manufacturing cell. That's cool. And it's hard to do something that awesome uh, and not be a government contractor <laughs> when you have a clientele <laughs> willing to drop that kind of dough on audio equipment. It's just a really cool uh, article on application to something I'm kind of interested in, but yeah. never be able to afford. And I like that idea. I mean, it's not, uh, I think they've shifted away from the paradigm of, you know, just, just because I make high end equipment doesn't mean I can't automate it. Right. So yeah. there's an association of ultra high end stuff always being made by hand. And we're like, mm, you don't have to do that. <laughs> well, if, I mean, if you're going to sell like the most ultra premium product for, you know, a niche market, yeah. Uh, or especially a hobbyist market right. and, and the beauty of hobbies and passions that people have is all, all hobbies and passions come back in some way or another to manufacturing. And if you're going to make the most advanced premium product of that particular market, you want to use the most advanced manufacturing processes right. to produce said product. Yeah. And that's exactly what this company is doing, which is really cool. Also, shout out to Lin Audio, the podcast is looking for sponsors. You know, I, I wouldn't mind a new oh, receiver, <laughs> speakers, I'll, whatever. I'll take that little jam boombox that you sell for a billion dollars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if they have a DAC amp for headphones, I don't, you know, I don't need a, you know, a listening room or, but I've got mm-hmm. really nice open back headphones back in the office and a DAC amp would be cool. Definitely. Uh, one of the last articles I want to talk about was uh, design for manufacturing. So the article is actually labeled, um, five tips to improve your CAD designs for CNC machining. And it's from Tech News, so it's it's a fairly light article, and it talks about, you know, limiting your amount of tolerances, avoiding thin walls, radius, radii for internal edges, you know, go into standard holes and watch out for small features. And you know, in a nutshell, yes, that all makes sense. But Steve, I wanted to talk about you a little bit more about design for manufacturing, <laughs> right? So you've got the the transfer of knowledge, right? That's basically how something gets designed and made right so if you got a design engineer or you know maybe a couple of design engineers and a stress engineer and a bunch of guys that are trying to figure out what the shape should look like but then that gets transferred to a manufacturing engineer is like figure this out right there's yeah and you know the idea of embedding all the knowledge or as much knowledge from manufacturing in the design is still a a ongoing dilemma ongoing problem and i think that's absolutely that's what the uh, you know the essence of the article is is trying to encapsulate that knowledge further upstream so you know the transition from design into manufacturing is like yeah yeah we're done let's 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 make some routers let's make some work instructions we can move forward as opposed to you know toiling away trying to figure out how to make this uh sharp edge on the inside when it's not really needed right so it's the yes dilemma of ongoing conversation so i was going to ask you you know and i've been in that previous world where you know, the idea of throwing something over the fence, that's still a reasonable example or a reasonable phrase to use. But, you know, you you ran the test bed for a while and you were absolutely a a, uh, a company of one for a while. So, if, you know, walk me through your thought process. If, if you had to split that role up into two people, so, what, yeah. what would you do? So coming from, you know, nothing, you know, when, when it, starting at AMT and then, you know, get taking uh, charge of the test bed and, and creating the test bed at that, right. You know, having started from, you know, college and no experience in manufacturing whatsoever. Uh, I got the blessing 
or more probably more accurately described as a baptism by fire <laughs> of the entire manufacturing workflow, right. at least for, you know, a, a milling or machining job shop. And, you know, so that goes for from, you know, what the customer wants all the way down to, um, you know, it being it coming off of the machine and the machinist handing it to inspection yep. and inspection saying this is good to ship. And then it gets delivered to the customer. So I learned really quickly that, like, you know, I thought all you needed to do initially was, you know, you download your, your CAD design from like GrabCAD or something, pick anything off of GrabCAD, yep. you know, send, send that STL file or whatever, send it to the machine <laughs> and click print. Right. Yep. Yep. You know, the machine t- does the rest as long as it's got like paper or, uh, you know, stock material <laughs> and uh, a tool, you know, go. Right. You know, um, no, I thought, you know, design was the hardest part initially yep. coming from nothing. I thought the design was the hardest part. And then I realized having a design, having a good design, like design that doesn't need to be changed in any way. Right. Is at the most 10% of that workflow. <laughs> sure. Sure. And then the next 80% is the cam or the manufacturing engineering. Right. And, you know, I, so Russ got me onto Instagram initially back in the day. And, and I've, I've since then, one of my favorite things to follow is the manufacturing following on Instagram, specifically the amount of machinists on Instagram, the instant mm-hmm. machinists. There's a huge amount of uh, people on Instagram right. that do that are machinists and do manufacturing. And um, these machinists absolutely hate engineers. <laughs> <laughs> they hate their manufacturing engineers. They hate design engineers. True. They, it, it's not like, you know, it's like, okay, you know, I'll work with this person, but as soon as, you know, we clock out, I'm not talking to this person until right. I have to clock back in the next day. And no, they flat out hate them. Yeah. Uh, like, you know, it, it's, and it's, you know, I'll look at a lot of these posts and, and they'll like, you know, they'll jab at like, you know, their, their coworkers that are operating like a wire EDM machine, those sure. nerds, or uh, <laughs> they'll, uh, and they'll definitely take jabs at inspection, QA, QC people. Sure. Like, you know, they hate it when they, you know, they, they make this beautiful part comes off their machine. They got a batch of them. They send them to QA and then they comes some, some, you know, <laughs> some pencil neck from inspection <laughs> comes back to them and be like, yeah, your parts are off by like three thousands. Right. And you know, they, they hate them, but they don't dislike those guys nearly as much as the engineers. Right. And I understand why thanks to the test bed, <laughs> because it's just, it's just, it's a headache. Right. And right. for example, like, you know, the one example that I can think of um, being all, you know, having worn, to uh, you know, a test bed, an R and D level, uh, all of those hats. Um, you know, you came to me back in the day. So it was like, okay, Steve, you've got the pocket NC up and running. You figured out how it works, and you figured out how to use it. Here's a part. Make me this part. Right. I want it by the end of the month. Yep. <laughs> Just one of them. You know, <laughs> not a, not a huge ask for an actual like professional machinist. Sure. And or or, or you know, manufacturing engineer. Or, uh, and, and so you get me this file and you were, you were making a, 
a Picatinny rail, well, uh, a 19 M1913 rail bracket right. for like your GoPro or some camera. So you could mount it to your rail mm-hmm. uh, to do some cool videos while shooting and stuff like that. And I was like, oh, cool. All right. This is an awesome part. Let's let's take a look at it. And it's like, oh, this is a pretty simple part. I can do this. You know, even though there are specialty cutters for cutting um, like rails right. into parts, uh, you know, I didn't have that. But, you know, you look at it. You, it's just right angles, so you don't really need it either. Yep. So, you know, I can do this with a square end mill, and a square end mill is all I had at the time. So single flute, cutting it out of Delrin or plastic, you know, we got this. This is easy. Yep. Um, did air cuts, did um, cuts in wax, and then once I was comfortable with it, we cut it out of plastic, and I handed it back to you. And then you were like, as the customer and design engineer, because remember, you handed me the design. The right. design was yep. already done. Yep. Um, and it went, man, I sweated this part because <laughs> I'm, I'm still not good at cam and cam is awful. And, you know, I had somebody at Autodesk talk about him very highly, Xander Luciano, mm-hmm. who was, I think was an intern at the time, was helping me with all of like the CAD cam and, you know, even using a pocket NC stuff. Absolute genius. Right. And he was, uh, he helped me a lot with that, but I hand you back this part and you're like, there's supposed to be a fillet here <laughs> and there's no fillet. <laughs> and I was like, well, you know, I can't make that like rounded off, uh, uh, surface right. with, you know, just square end mill. And you were like, well, don't you think you should have told me that? <laughs> don't you think we should have, you know, calculated, uh, you know, the type of stresses that this new design can handle because it doesn't have that fillet. And I was like, I was holding back all of the expletives. <laughs> so I understand why there is so much like, you know, hate. Yeah. I'm sorry. It's hate yeah. between, you know, machinists and, and their engineers that the engineers that they have to deal with. I yep. totally get it. Yep. And yeah, it is a huge problem. And yeah. I'm sure some companies have minimized that problem and got a little bit of, uh, you know, the stress and tension uh, reduced and eased off of those two roles, but I totally see why it's there. And I totally feel for all the Instagram and the instant machinists, <laughs> man. I get it. Yeah. And I've only done one part. I'm not even doing <laughs> batches. I don't even have to deal with inspection, you yeah. know? Yep. <laughs> it's, just, it's, it's miserable. <laughs> and it's not just, you know, subtractor manufacturing. It's like oh my God. Welding, joining, anytime you're transferring knowledge. And, uh, you know, I think that's the key takeaway is that, you know, one is creating more, uh, more of a collaborative and open environment, right? As opposed to, it's not just a one-way street. Um, yeah. But at the same time, you know, I feel like design engineering is always trying to push the envelope a little bit, trying to get, you know, uh, a better Absolutely. design or yeah. so. It's it's a struggle of hey, we haven't done this before. Is this new? Versus you know, we have this old part that we need to make again you know, uh, where's the inherent knowledge or, you know, incrementally approve on old design where, you know, design engineer may come to something where we need a radically new process where that takes time to an explore. And I think, you know, you know, in talking about it, I feel like that's the kind of core essence of the problem is that, you know, the, the idea of either prototyping the transition from a design into a manufacturing, uh, space or something that is manufacturable. I don't, I think that time is whittled away down to let's do design and then manufacturing as opposed to let's do a design, let's test prototype and then get feedback in the design and then feed that back into a new design that is more manufacturable or, 
creating yeah. an environment to draw information from the manufacturing engineer or operator to say, hey, I got this design before I go to a finite element analysis. You know, how does it look? Do I need more features? <laughs> right. So and I think that's a dilemma, right? The design engineers yeah. investing tons of time into validating the design, make sure the stresses, make sure the environment work. Absolutely. And if anything, you know, manufacturing, the manufacturing industry may even have this dilemma a lot easier than another industry I can think of. Sure. Having gone to college and a lot of my roommates and friends were studying to become architects. Right. Right. Dude, the 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 headbutting between <laughs> an architect and the civil engineer that actually has to build their mess of a structure. Yeah. Like I know there's got to be a lot of civil engineers that look at an architect's design and be like, well, this needs to be changed. This needs to be right, changed. Right. And ultimately, or they just get a design from an architect and be like, oh, my God, I, I hope we can't get a permit for this. <laughs> I really just hope this doesn't even get to the permit level. And <laughs> because, because at least at least manufacturing, you don't need to worry about getting a permit for yeah, something. Yeah. And unless I think you're making a firearm. I think my old when one, one old uh, manufacturing engineer summed it up properly is that. Yeah, we can manufacture anything once. The question is, <laughs> do you want to pay for it, right? Do you, yeah, geek. that's like the English way. Of, that's the English automo, uh, automobile industry mentality. <laughs> yeah. We can make exactly. the perfect car, yeah. but don't ask for two of them. <laughs> awesome, Steve. This is a great episode. Uh, where can they find more info about us? You can find more info about us at amtonline.org resources. Go ahead and subscribe. Awesome. Take care, everyone. Bye. Bye.